Welcome to Corner of Hunter George, episode number 53. We return to the Peterborough art scene in this episode to speak to Brooklyn Doran. Brooklyn is a queer singer-songwriter, originally from Kenora, but became a staple in the Toronto folk scene for over 10 years. She now resides in our lovely Nogojimanon, East City to be precise. And she's known for vulnerable lyricism and haunting melodies that definitely come out on her latest album, Fixer Upper, which was just released in June. And we discuss in this program her album, her life in Peterborough, various musicians she's worked with, and her interesting views on the music industry in general. She's a great guest to have on, and I hope you get to know her well on our interview today. My name is Brooklyn Dora. I'm a singer-songwriter. I'm originally from Kenora, Ontario. I'm now based in Peterborough. But mm-hmm. in between, I spent about 15 years in the city of Toronto. Uh, I use the pronoun she, her. My hair is pink today. I am wearing a tie-dyed tank top. And behind me is my beautiful office space with a candle, some musical equipment, and um, a beautiful little window behind me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I Your question to me, Tim, today, which is very a lovely question, is how long have I been in Peterborough and what brought me there? Um, I have lived in Peterborough for about two years. Mm-hmm. And the thing that brought me there was a love. I fell in love with a beautiful woman named Faith. She lives and works in Peterborough. And at a certain point, I was visiting here so often that I thought, you know, it makes sense for us to move in together and live here as a as a couple. And now we're engaged and now we have a beautiful little house in East City. So we're really excited to be in this community. And I love being surrounded by nature. So that's lovely. Yes. No, I love it. Yeah, that's lovely to hear. And uh, yeah, East City definitely provides you with that uh, close link to nature. So, yeah, that's that's lovely to hear. And I mean, you've already done things like First Friday, and I see you've played at Jethro's and things like that. So you've gotten an idea of what it's like playing here and things like that. Yeah, exactly. I used to come up to Peterborough quite frequently. Um, Before I moved here, I used to play at the Garnet, which is now no longer. But it was a, a lovely space to play as well. Yes. And I see even in the past, I think you've done things on Trent Radio and things like that. So. Yeah, I have a Trent Radio show right now with my friend Cole. It's called CanCon, where mm. we play Canadian content. Uh, so all local musicians from Peterborough, Nogojewanong, from Ontario, from the East Coast, all across Canada. And then we also review Canadian beer cans and uh, the uh, beer that's inside. So we talk about local breweries as well. 
Right. Okay. Pieces of art in themselves. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, this FYI, I'm not currently on Trent Radio, but I have been for most of the last two years, and they probably will convince me to join again in the fall. So I love it. You this, should this do may, it. This may pop up, say, in October, November, or something like that. Isn't okay. Episode. Let's do it. That sounds yeah. so fun. Um. So with uh, I, I so I guess you've kind of answered that question I was going to ask but uh so it was it was basically uh meet uh meeting faith and coming up here so more than any sort of thing to do with any uh, covid lockdown or any I I can imagine some financial restraints you'd face uh living in Toronto Absolutely so when um covid first happened I was living in Toronto in a little one bedroom apartment above uh, my friend Jemuel. Mm-hmm. And when the lockdowns first started happening, of course, touring was not an option. So I chose to spend the first six months uh, in my hometown of Kenora living with my mom. Uh, I thought it was really nice to be with family. And if I was going to quarantine with someone, might as well be my folks. Uh, and Kenora is much more nature based than Peterborough. Even my mom has Uh, She lives basically out in the forest in a little house. So uh, I was able to spend a lot of time at the lake, do a lot of hiking, do a lot of fishing, do a lot of kayaking. And you almost did not notice the quarantining aspect of things because people were so far away from you anyways (laughs) that you, you wouldn't run into another person in this particular forest. So that was, it almost felt serene in a way that you could almost forget that you were living in a global pandemic because uh, my mom lived so remotely from other folks uh, in the nearby city. So that was really lovely. Um, But ultimately I came back, uh, I was working a couple different day jobs, still doing music and uh, I chose to spend the next part the next chapter of my pandemic uh, back at my old apartment in Toronto. And that is where I wrote the single Wasted My Twenties with my friend Jemuel, who goes by Jem, J3M. We wrote that song together when we were uh, living in very close quarters during the second part of the pandemic. Right. Okay. So the first part, it sounds like you had a lot of time to yourself in these, this, these lovely mm-hmm. environments such as where your mother was. So, so how I've interpreted fixer upper and I could very well be wrong, um, kind of in a melancholy way, it seems to be uh, overall you coming to sort of some self-realization or self-discovery about yourself as you've entered a new decade of life. Heck so yeah, like, you got it. A, okay. No, that's exactly right. And something that's really interesting about that record fixer upper is that most of the songs, um, Wasted My Twenties being the obvious exception, uh, we originally recorded in 2019 with the intention of releasing that entire record in March of 2020, Mm -hmm. which ultimately, of course, did not happen. What a wild time to be alive. Um, But we had a really unique opportunity that a lot of artists don't get you know, there's financial constraints, studio time costs a lot of money. We're working on these album cycles and tight timelines. But um, 
the music industry just sort of opened up. Timelines weren't as important anymore during this time. And we got the chance to go back and revisit some of the songs that we had written for the record in 2019 and re-record them in a way that felt uh, a little bit more representative of who I am as an artist right now. So I feel like the record itself represents a bit of a journey. All of the songs flow into each other in a way that's really intentional and really meaningful, but also there the, you can kind of, I don't know if you can hear it, I can hear it. I can hear a transition of sound from folk to something a little bit more maybe grunge influenced or mm -hmm. alternative sounding more definitely like more in the singer songwriter mold and less in the traditional traditional folk uh territory yeah um i think that's yeah um if i totally thought of that but i do hear kind of uh um, a bit more say of an edge to it than what I've listened to uh, of your other albums. Like this album is your fourth, I believe. Am I correct? Well, I had an EP that I released in 2014 called There's a Light On. Right. And then I had a full length record that I released in 2016 called These Paper Wings. And then this one would be the third. Oh, okay. Okay. Third. And uh, so, yes, it was meant for 2020, but it just came out in June. Exactly. You may be thinking fourth because at one point I think I did release a compilation of remixes that other people had done of my songs and uh, that is available on Bandcamp only. Okay. And which I, yes, I will put in a link, uh, my notes uh, where people can find you on Bandcamp and things like that. Uh, of course. But, Thanks, uh, but uh, so I, I don't think this album goes against uh, what, how you, self-describe yourself a sad song society uh, yeah and maybe, that's me yes and maybe you maybe you can explain overall your relation to the sad song uh, it, well, it, the it, elevator... it is a theme in your career i think in your yeah. well i think in real life i'm just such a happy person that i need to barf out my sadness into music and i think that that's what helps me live a holistic and healthy and balanced life so that's definitely that. And and the elevator pitch that I often make for my music is that, uh, you know, I'm either the gay president of the Sad Song Society or that I make sad lesbian folk music. And I think people hearing that get an overall picture of what that <laughs> what that sounds like and also give some friends a little chuckle. So. Mm. Um, and. But what the song you've been mentioning, Wasted My Twenties, yeah. that's definitely a song with a bit of edge to it. Um, there seems to be a bit of, uh, some people can interpret that you have kind of a bit of a self, I don't know if I want to say hatred or disgust of yourself for a lot of uh, bars and pot and empty <laughs> uh, sex perhaps. But um, but it, I don't know, do you look at it now perhaps as maybe also something as you can a lot of people call the learning experience of life, the learning cycle of life. Of course. I mean, I would never call that, you know, self-hatred, self-deprecation, maybe. I'm here with a broken heart in an empty bar Playing love songs, baby Too bad they'll never be about you now Three beers in the parking lot We were smoking pot that the dog I gave me yeah. 
think that um, it's yeah. lovely and empowering to go out in your 20s and live your life and um, be a free and wild person if that's who you want to be. Um, and it's also okay to do that in your 30s and in your 40s and in your 50s. Like, do what makes your heart happy and what keeps all the people around you happy as well. Um, I wrote that song for a lot of different reasons. One, entering a new decade of my life feels fun, uh, but also a little bit nerve-wracking. Uh, and also, I think that there's this nostalgic quality to the fact that there's an almost universal experience in making fun mistakes in your 20s. And also, a lot of that comes from real experiences. I did go on tour and have the sound guy pay me a loose nugget of pot and mm -hmm. smoked it with a random bartender in the next town. I'm no longer a person who imbibes in cannabis, but at the yeah. time, like, I just think that that's a funny touring story. And oftentimes when you're on the road, you'll play huge festivals to thousands of people. And then the next night you'll play in a shitty dive bar to only the bartender and two other people there. So that dichotomy, I think, is important because success isn't measured linearly right well another song i really love perhaps my favorite on the whole one if someone was to point a gun at my head and make me pick i think it would be this town won't miss you okay and, let's go. and uh yeah i just uh, i think it's kind of a again sort of what i've been talking about kind of maybe these kind of existentialist like songs sort of you uh i guess kind of um realizing I think you've said in some interviews, like a way of, uh, like, uh, of you, you leaving, uh, Kenora in the beginning, cause that's what it's about. And, yeah. um, um, you're thinking on your original hometown, maybe a place you still think of as home too. Yeah. I think so. Mm -hmm. Um, this town won't miss you is an important song to me. It's very personal and also very nostalgic. Um, the music video for it we shot with my friend Matt Kennedy, who runs a company called Upriver Media, and Nicholas Camire, who uh, did all of the vintage shots with the Super 8 millimeter camera. Uh, he normally shoots skate videos on that camera, but got him for the music video, which is so sick. Um, and I really wanted to write to this experience of, I mean, much like... Peterborough and the surrounding region, Kenora is a cottage town. And there are a lot of spaces in Kenora that a cottager or a tourist would not know about and would not go to. And what we wanted to do was highlight some of those grittier feeling spaces that are so iconic to a person who would have grown up there and highlight those spaces as beautiful because as much as a waterfront is beautiful or a beautiful camping site or trail is beautiful or like, I don't know, lovely little water feature. We, we also have a fountain in the Kenora Harbor front. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's also important to highlight some of those spaces that are just iconic to being a hooligan teenager running around 
doing your thing and in a back alley smoking cigarettes in front of a restaurant kind of a vibe. So I think that we captured that in a, in a beautiful way. We captured the nostalgia of missing home and that feeling of when you're really young and all you want to do is leave, but then this kind of invisible string that pulls you back. And, and I think we did a really good job. I think I even I heard you say somewhere read that you said somewhere even when you lived in Toronto you still made a point of going there at least once or twice a year even though that's it's quite a drive but Oh, it is a 2-day drive. But yes. even now I try I try to visit home at least mm-hmm. once a year or once every 2 years because all my folks are there. So I got to visit my family and also it's just the place I grew up. So it's very meaningful to me to be right. one that definitely has edge is uh, fuck that guy. Um, yeah. I, I think some could argue that's a necess- necessary way of thinking of most men. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, I don't know if you could say anything about that song. If, if it's again, part of the self-realization or anything else, I'm anything else I'm missing from that. So that song I wrote with my friend, Evan Red Sky, who's from mm-hmm. Blind River, Ontario, now based in Toronto. Evan has like, a very sick record that just came out called Oblivion. Um, He actually wrote that song almost in its entirety and showed me it in my living room after we had played a festival together. Uh, And the song really resonated with me because when he was writing that song, he was writing it from the perspective of feeling like at times he had been that guy. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to it from the perspective of being like, wow, I've definitely met that guy before. I've I, I've definitely had interactions with a guy like that, a few different guys like that. And so Evan and I collaborated on that song. And I think ultimately I only changed what, from what he showed me to the final project, I product project. I think that I only changed one line of the song. Otherwise, the first version that he showed me, we kept almost in its entirety. Yeah, a lot of things you uh, really seem to have this collaborative process of writing. Oh, yeah, I, I love co-writing. Yes, and I will I will get into some specific people that you've either done co-writing or you've worked with before 
later later in this interview. But okay. uh, one other song I find maybe a bit more mysterious to interpret, but uh, Ooh, Michigan okay. State, which I believe is the last track on your album. Yes. Okay. So Michigan State is actually a song that is not, I tend to exploit my real life in my songwriting, mm-hmm. but this song started as a writing exercise with my friend and my co-writer slash producer, Dan Hoesch, in which we just really wanted to rhyme with the word Chevrolet. We just thought the word Chevrolet was so vibey and could we write something that rhymed with that? And so there came in the phrase Michigan State. Mm -hmm. I have family in Michigan, but the story behind the song actually is a fictional story. It did not happen to me. But the feeling behind that story is something that really resonates with me. And the concept that we sort of came to in writing it, other than the place and the vehicle being made up, uh, about taking the same car ride home from the bar. And the first time you take that car ride home, you're so into this person you really want them to take you home. And that energy is so butterflies and static uh, and electric. And then the second car ride being a car ride that's sort of a, you know, breakup car ride. I'm sure we've all been in one of those breakup car rides where the energy is just very heavy and sad and awkward. And there's so much left in the air unsaid. And so we wanted to take the concept of, the exact same car ride being different years apart and being drastically different despite all of the circumstances being the same. Oh. So that, that's the concept behind that one. <laughs> now, in the past, one could say, I guess, some of your earlier work from the 2010s may have been like, you know, this folk singer-songwriter, but like yeah. you said, this would be a bit more of a grunge theme to it and i heard that you say this term bubble grunge yeah what 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 is that exactly are we i i I don't want to throw out meaningless names but i know are we talking about something like a liz fair kind of thing or what are we talking about yeah of course i think so when i i did not ever know of the term bubble grunge until the spotify algorithm put one of my songs on the this is the pulse of bubble grunge playlist or this is the edge of bubble grunge playlist so i researched what that was and i think yeah liz fair would be a great example of bubble grunge um soccer mommy um bia badoobie um maybe even like a little you could get there with like lucy dacus all of those musicians that I think it's like it is grungy and it is serious, but it also in a way uh, has a bit of that pop element to it that doesn't bring it all the way into full uh, grunge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I've heard you admit, too, that you have a bit of a, maybe a guilty liking of listening to Basket Case quite a bit. So I do is, like is that. It, yeah, is it, is it, <laughs> Green Day, let's go. <laughs> that's right. So is it fair to say that you've sort of maybe subconsciously developed a bit of a nineties kind of, you know, not exactly the same, but some version of the nineties in your music kind of. Thing. Oh, well I grew up in the nineties. So I am yes. obsessed with that vibe and that era of music. 
I think that there's always an era of music growing up that you attach yourself to and then you can't remove yourself from, even though like tons of new music is coming out. I always go back to, you know, that Michelle Branch, that Vanessa Carlton, that um, Courtney Love, that whole era of music. And it's just something really fun to listen to and re-explore. Right, right. Well, yeah, you could you could argue with some of them, such as I don't know, live through this. It, maybe not musically, but what it was, what the themes were in that really uh, still hold up quite well, actually, because this is you know obviously well before right? you things like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, and but more of a modern influence, you've played with uh, one band you played with is cancer bats which i admit yeah. i don't i don't know anything about so i know they, they <laughs> seem to have a punk edge to them but besides that newest record is called psychic jailbreak mm-hmm. and i sang on one of the tracks of that record it's called hammering on uh and they took me on tour to sing uh to be a part of the group uh i don't know i had a lot of different jobs i did all their social media for them during that time which was so fun uh, we went to England together. We went across Canada. We're going to head out to Europe and Eastern Europe again this fall. And then this past Saturday, uh, we performed at the Budweiser stage uh, and we opened for Cypress Hill and Billy Talent, which is the biggest show that I've ever done with that band. That is quite, yeah, that is quite, that is quite significant. Okay, wow. Yeah, but it's um, heavy music. It's heavy. It feels it feels so raw and real, and I really mm. like being a part of uh, their journey too. Now, you feel free to correct me if I'm saying his last name wrong, but you've also also had a working relation with Rory Talon, I believe. Is that how Talon? Yeah, Halon? no. Okay. Rory also is just a powerhouse vocalist. I would describe mm. his music as chamber folk it sounds like like frank turner and hosier had a baby it's very gorgeous Mm. Uh, his songwriting is also very deep and introspective but boy can that guy sing loud i love touring with rory and that was uh when about when you were you touring with him uh i have toured with him since 2016. he took me out on my first album release tour uh, when I released uh, these paper wings, we did we've done the East Coast together quite a fair amount of times. We've toured through Ontario together quite a bit as well. Uh, love that guy. He's crushing it these days. Okay, so and one other name I'll mention. I think you've worked with this person quite a bit, Andrew Sheriff. Yeah, you know, I did a quick it? tour with Andrew Sheriff right before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Our the last show of our tour together actually was in Bowmanville on March 20th, no, March 12th. Whichever day was the first day of the pandemic, I have PTSD of the pandemic time, so I'm like, can't recall, but I remember we went to the bar and we were like, should we be here? Should we be playing this show right now? And the bar was like, I think we're allowed to be open but we're not sure. And us all just sitting on our phones being like, do we need to immediately go home right now? Or are we playing a gig? Like just that intense nervousness and fear and unknown of what was happening at the beginning of the pandemic. Like 
I don't remember the date, but I do remember that our last show of that tour was the first day of the pandemic. And ultimately we ended up playing that show. And the next day, every single thing was on lockdown. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's, it's best to, yeah, just maybe erase that from memory, but yeah. Right. Um, it was yeah. so wild. We were just yeah. all on our phones being like, can we get home? Mm-hmm. Where are we supposed to go? What is happening? It was so mm-hmm. wild. Right. And of course, that sort of began kind of even a like a lot of challenges coming to the music industry itself since then. But uh, now the quote of you that really got my attention was where you were described. I think you're, you were talking about Canadian Music Week in North by Northeast. But Ooh, the CBC you, article. Yes. Well, it's basically you said you described the music industry or working or trying to get your attention during these festivals as a speed dating process. Yeah. You always have to be in touch with people and always trying to make new relations and see what can work out. And that seems to be it's always how you've worked a lot of your uh, either touring or working with, on your albums with. But uh, so I guess I'm trying to ask, does this process work beyond the festivals? Like, do you find it a necessary thing to do as a musician to be staying kind of afloat and all that? I think that ultimately the musicians, in my opinion, who mm-hmm. are the most successful at their craft and who are receiving their due success are people who are just nice. Um, I think that you could be the most talented person in the entire world, but if you're an asshole, people don't want to work with you. So in a lot of ways, the, the pay to play festivals, they will incorporate that kind of speed dating aspect to it. I personally like truly despise the world of networking. I would prefer to go to a show meet someone, hang out with them, and not always have that question in the back of my mind of what does this person want from me or what can I get from this person? I'd rather just make genuine friendships in the industry and then have those um, working relationships organically form versus trying to force it to happen. Mm. Um yeah, that's that's an interesting point. Uh, and so that well, certainly never hurts to be friendly. I now I don't. You've had so much. I mean, you have quite a lot uh, of uh, experience uh, and a lot not music mainly, but a lot of different areas in life. Uh, yeah. Your 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 um your uh, linked uh, linked up uh, page is quite. You know, I don't think you've been on it recently, but it's quite in depth of uh, things you've done in the past. So yes. Oh yeah, I, mean, I know. A lot more than you've a lot more than I do, but uh, but uh, but I one thing it kind of makes it so it makes me kind of want to um, ask a bit about uh, sort of some things about your Toronto period. Do you feel like because the cost of housing and everything has just escalated there? Do you feel like do you feel like ever since you went there in 2008, there's been a bit of a loss of a Toronto sound because people just can't afford staying living there, even if that wasn't the reason mm-hmm. you left? But That is a really good question. And mm-hmm. I think that, yes, I think that there is um, pockets of community that remain, but the Toronto that I first started playing music in was a much bigger scene. 
I wouldn't, I would say that, yes, it's very hard in terms of cost of living uh, to live in Toronto. I would also say that a lot of the smaller music venues and bars where I first started playing at closed during the pandemic. And so now if you're an artist trying to make it, the amount of spaces you can play uh, is just that much smaller. Um, especially those small spaces is really important for an emerging artist because it is hard to say to an artist who it's their first show ever, can you fill a 200 seat venue? Like if it's your first show, maybe you can, but maybe mm -hmm. also you're nervous and you might not want to. Um, there's still some like very vibrant, wonderful spaces to play. Um, handlebar comes to mind. The Painted Lady comes to mind. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some mid-size size venues that are lovely too for, you know, 50, 50 to 100 person shows. Burdock, uh, the Dakota Tavern, the Drake Underground, um, the Cameron House Backroom. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously the Horseshoe Tavern, Craig Glasky from Collective Concerts puts on a ton of shows there that really like support an emerging and local artist. So those are always a lovely gig to get. But uh, when I first started out, there was so many open mics, places to play. Um, and I think since the pandemic uh, across Canada, Across the world, basically, a lot of those smaller spaces haven't been able to keep their doors open. Yes, that's yeah, and that's I've I've heard this someone knowledgeable lately. His name's uh, John Vanderslice. He was basically saying, I think this was in April. I heard this. So basically, you're making the same performing a night at a at a spot. That, yeah, there's a lot less places to play at, but you're making about the same that you are. Uh, playing a night that you were, say, in the mid two thousands, mm -hmm. and that, I, I would that, probably agree with that. Yeah, and and in a touring sense, um, I've seen this in a few spots that like the cost of insurance and gas, and basically, unless you're the point one percent of the world, like Taylor Swift, basically, you're mm -hmm. it's a losing money venture a lot of times if you're touring. Have you have you come into these sort of challenges? Uh, yourself when it comes to touring because you've been a lot of spots you've been oh yeah you're, you're touring currently sort of a show here and a show there which we might get oh, yeah. into and uh you've been to the U.S. you've been in the U.K. but if you uh... I think I would venture to say that um I am lucky in that I have not lost a significant money in trying to tour but I mm -hmm. also am a person who uh, has the option of touring solo or with a band. So mm -hmm. if I rehearsed a band and I was taking a full band on the road with me, uh, that would definitely be a losing money venture because we want to pay uh, the people who perform with us a livable wage to be a part of our bands. Uh, but for myself, I know that if I am touring to a new place, I will most likely take that show as a solo artist that way that I'm not losing money. I, I'm not, I don't want to be in the business of losing money. So mm -hmm. I think that I have luckily created a situation for myself where um, if the venue, if the performance, if the festival 
has the budget for me to rehearse and bring out a band. I can rehearse a band here in Peterborough. I can rehearse a band in the East Coast. I can rehearse a band uh, in the middle of Ontario or close to where I grew up. And that way that helps cut down on my travel costs. Mm -hmm. But then also if I know that I don't have a ton of budget, I can take those gigs solo and still be able to turn a profit from that after paying for my gas and all of that. Right. So is it fair to say then going off what you're saying, I think is it's uh, your best bet is to play maybe more smaller venues, perhaps solo and maybe keeping the tour a little more local. Like uh, we're not going to. Yeah. I think for myself, my next goal is, instead of creating these smaller headlining tours or co-headlining tours, ideally I'd love to hit the road as an opener for an act that can fill a little bit more seats than me. That way I'm touring to just the next echelon of venue. Uh, That way we know that we can play those spaces and fill those seats. Uh, But I view touring now this wonderful man who I met Uh, a few years ago, who was touring from the UK to Canada, told me this lovely analogy. His name is Will Varley. Mm. And he said that every time you tour to a new place, it is like lighting a small fire. And the next year or six months later, you come back to that town and you see if your fire has grown or if it has gotten smaller. And if it's gotten smaller, maybe it means we don't tour back to that town. But if it has grown, then you can stoke that fire by continually going back to that place and slowly building out those tours so that every time you revisit those towns, there's more and more people who are coming out to your shows. And that's how you build yourself up as an artist. Right. Okay. Well, those definitely sound like words of wisdom there. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, now going back even maybe further in your past, I, I, still find you maybe have a link in what you do in life to this, what you studied at York University, which I believe was drama and kind of a... Yeah, theater school. Yes, and and also your minor that you took at York as well. Yes, my minor was in race, ethnicity, and indigeneity. So we did a lot of work in reading the intense legalese that is the Indian Act, uh, and we parsed it. I took a bunch of cross-disciplinary studies in that realm, and I think that it's just really important for anyone who calls this place home to do educational work in learning about our history. Right, and I and I haven't seen you so much of uh, theater that you've done uh, in recent memory, but uh, but your what you had in minor, you can correct me in a second if I'm wrong on that. But well, your your minor, I just wonder if you like because there's some places in Ontario you can go and you don't see, or you, it's probably not it's maybe not obvious to see much of a presence presence of First Nations, but there certainly is in Peterborough. With, um, yeah. So I don't know if that's come to you since you've been living here. Um. Well, I. It was a really great thing to study, and I think that every nation is different and every band is different, but it's important to hear from the people their own histories and to give tobacco and to hear where 
each person has come from and what the history from their community is. Because I think that while there's probably a lot of scenarios that are similar between uh, the folks in Nogojuanong and in Treaty 3 near Kenora uh, and Shoal Lake 40 and Grassy Narrows and all of that, uh, there's also some marked differences in the experiences of those people over time. And yeah, I think it's important no matter where you live to learn about the history of that place, to learn the treaty rights of that place and to do as much as you can to support uh, what that nation or that band is hoping to achieve and what their wishes are. So, yeah, it's right. tough to be disenfranchised over over a century that's like what a what a trip and a lot of canadians and people living in canada don't understand that history and don't know that struggle and i think that there's also a lot to uh the cultural practices within indigeneity that are also a celebration Mm -hmm. and a joy and Mm -hmm. i think that in a lot of ways um the topic of indigenous studies can become a heavy topic and obviously a lot of those subjects are really important. We need to learn about residential school. We need to learn about the 60 scoop, but also there's so much joy in cultural practices happening amongst Mohawk and Anishinaabe, Wendat, uh, Haudenosaunee folks that they're also just lovely to, to experience and to see from the outside as well. Okay, lovely. Um, and so maybe, yeah, maybe you can correct me. Have you, have you done work in the last, say, decade or so in the- theater or are you still? That been- no, okay. no, but I was a stage manager for a very long time. I did a bit of stage managing for uh, different fringe shows mm-hmm. for the Toronto Fringe Festival. I worked with Native Earth Performing Arts for a year or two. And then I also worked with uh, a Shakespeare in the Park company. And then, you know, I transitioned over to music, but I do feel like I use my theater education every day when I'm performing. Okay. Well, yeah, that, that's that's good to hear and definitely, definitely helps. Um, and you've done work in the past curating visual art shows, I believe, in Toronto as well. Yes. So. Yeah. Yeah. Right now I work for an organization called Street Art Toronto, mm-hmm. uh, where we... Uh, work with different graffiti and street artists all across the city of Toronto uh, to create beautiful works of public art. Um, and uh, do you have, do you see that? That's certainly something. I mean, Peterborough's done a bit of that, but there's certainly uh, many possibilities for those things here as well. But uh, yeah, I yeah. love seeing the beautiful um, artwork on the actual street itself when mm-hmm. they close down Hunter Street gorgeous work yes yeah it is it's uh it uh yeah i I do love that as well um so uh i guess uh, another question i have a little more in the current did you find um because i believe when i'm getting off uh instagram or whatever that you've uh you you took part in this year's pride parade i did i was part of toronto pride this year right and um that may a few years ago maybe that was maybe yeah i i could be wrong about you of course but uh you may may have seen it's more just a you know an annual ritual but did do you think this year it had a bit more significance to it for yourself oh uh, yeah you know what i have 
it is to, this year I have crossed so many things off of my bucket list. Mm-hmm. And one of those things being performing at Toronto Pride. I never thought that that was something that could be for me. Um, not in terms of my identity, but in terms of my level of performance. Pride is oftentimes a space for uh, drag queens and DJs mm-hmm. and um, music that's so uplifting and danceable. I would not personally describe my music as danceable. Yes, it's a little so, upbeat for someone melancholy. Yes, yes, exactly. So yes. it had never crossed my mind that I would be able to be a main stage performer at Pride. We performed at the Rogers South stage. Mm. And this year was different because I think, I may be wrong about this, but I don't think I am. I think that this year was the first year that they had a Pride Live stage, Mm -hmm. which was a stage specifically dedicated to live musicians. Um, There was a blues band. There was me performing solo. There was um, an incredible artist named Witch Prophet. And then there was also CJ Wiley, who plays uh, a kind of upbeat country vibe of music. So I'm really stoked that I was able to do that performance because never thought that that would be me just okay. based on my style of music. Ooh, I make sad stuff. <laughs> That's good. It's great. It's good to hear. Yeah. Uh, witch prop that that would have been quite an experience as well. So yes. Yeah. So yes. cool. Right. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, so what, uh, so I see you have a few dates upcoming on your tours your places you're playing this summer. I don't know if you can mm-hmm. expand on that where you've been, as I think you have one coming up this month at Dakota Tavern. And Yeah. I have a bunch of, I even have some that I haven't even told people yet. Oh, so I have uh, this week I'm playing at Sudbury pride, which mm-hmm. I think is really important because rural prides uh, are often the spaces where the most hatred and bigotry comes out of the woodwork. So I'm very excited to be playing at Sudbury pride this year. Um, I'm playing at Handlebar this Saturday. We're doing uh, Night of 1000 Courtney Loves. So I'm doing a whole cover set. Mm. And then uh, next week, I have a gig on the 21st at Jethro's with SJ Riley. And then on the 22nd, I'm playing at the Dakota Tavern, again with Andrew Sheriff Mm -hmm. and a lovely artist named Victoria Staff. And then in... August, I'm going to play at the Neighborhood Vintage Pop-Up Market uh, right in the courtyard behind Neighborhood Vintage. Uh, They're going to have a whole marketplace set up that Saturday on August 12th, so I will be the performer there on that day. And then, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this yet or not, but I am playing a, how will I say this? I am playing on August 19th at a wonderful event that will happen at Nicholas Oval Park that okay. I will not oh, name. Yes. I think yeah, I have an idea what you're saying. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. Well, I will just put out what's on your web page or whatever. I'll, I'll put up. Thank you so much. Yeah, That's so, so just, lovely. Yeah. Um, and oh, I, I have to ask this too. What have you found it like playing at Jethro's specifically? Oh my goodness. Jethro's is, I think, one of the best slash 
maybe the only, correct me if I'm wrong. No, there's a couple other venues. It's a perfect venue for a folk artist to play, for a folk or country artist to play. I used to play at the Garnet. Jethro, Jethro's feels very similar to that vibe, a laid back, vibey atmosphere. Not too small, not too big. You can easily bring a crowd out to that space. Um, a lot of the other venues in Peterborough right now are like rather large. So mm -hmm. I think that it's so lovely to have a community space that touring artists can go to who don't necessarily have a network of people here yet and that emerging artists have a place to play as well. Right. No, well, it's aesthetically, I feel quite, quite nice. It's not the only place, but uh, some of the other ones maybe. Might be a bit um, large, right? Are either a bit large or a bit small, even perhaps. So yes. yeah, true. Yes. So yes. it's like a great middle place for me. It's a great spot for me to play. Right. <laughs> um, so uh, and I guess my last thing I'll just say, uh, whereabouts uh, do you, do you suggest people uh, look up your music or find things about you? Oh, you can find it everywhere. Okay. Um, but if you want a general hub for all things mm -hmm. Brooklyn, you can follow me. Uh, on social media, or you can check out my website at www.brooklyndoran.com.